Well, a, a question for you as we begin. Uh, I don't think it, it, it matters if you follow Jesus, how long you follow Jesus, or if you have been following Jesus for a long time. I think anyone can answer this question because you've probably got uh, perceptions and maybe caricatures and all those sorts of things. But here's the question. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think those things are kind of intertwined a little bit. If you have been following Jesus for a while, or if you are maybe thinking about it someday and think, I'd like this, uh, is it always a good time? Do we automatically, do followers of Jesus automatically get everything we want because we follow that king, that, that God that can move mountains? Do we even always understand what it means to follow Jesus? Well, we've been working through the Gospel of John here for a little while at Trinity, and we've been able to witness the lives of these early disciples as they start to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. We saw at the beginning where Jesus came onto the scene, kind of launched into his public ministry, and, and called these disciples. He said, hey, come and, come and see. Come see what this is going to look like. And we've witnessed them. We've witnessed the disciples see the, the, the miracles and the signs and the wonders. And they've heard the teachings. And they've seen, we've seen them try to process it all. And they, they get some things right and they miss other things just completely. But they try to fit all that they're seeing Jesus doing into their Jewish worldview. And they start to think, this guy's really something. This guy's the Messiah. This guy's going to maybe get us out from under the thumb of Rome and... and, and they don't always get it right, but they've, they've got some ideas. And they're, I think at this point in our, in our time in the Gospel of John, they're probably riding pretty high. And so we see them now uh, gathered at, at what would become their last meal with Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. It's, it's Passover time. The city's busy. Everyone's celebrating. This is a, a major event in the life of, of the Jewish faith. And, but Jesus sits them down for this meal. And, and unlike the disciples, he does know this is going to be our last meal together. And it's a completely different Passover meal than they expected. It starts with Jesus washing their feet. They would have never expected that. And then Jesus launches into what, what we now call his, his farewell discourse, his last words to these disciples. Last words are super important, as you know. If, there's, if, if you know that you've only got a certain amount of time left, you want to get those things off your chest, right? To make sure those who are around you know how you feel and, and know what you're, you're leaving them with and all these things. So the disciples, no doubt, riding high at this point, come to this meal, and then everything kind of crashes around them. Instead of celebrating this king coming to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome, Jesus says, one of you at this table is going to betray me. Like soon. Another one of you, Peter, you're not going to make it through the night without denying that you know me. And boys, I know we've been together for the last months and, and years, but I'm leaving. And you can't come with me. Imagine the emotions, the shift, the anxiety, the grief, the misunderstanding. Everything's now up in the air. Their hearts are, are shaken and, and, and stirred and thrown for a loop. What do you mean you're leaving, Jesus? But Jesus 
loves them. So he doesn't just leave them with that kind of bad news that I'm going away. But he starts to unpack what that would mean and starts to redefine the relationship. He says, don't be troubled at the start of verse four, or chapter 14. Believe in God, believe in me. Don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be shaken. Trust God. Trust me. You've been doing this. Just keep doing this. He promises that, listen, I I said I'm going away, but I'm actually going away to prepare a place for you, and then I'm actually going to come back and take you there with me. I will be with you again. And he promises that, that if he leaves, it's actually better for them in the long run. Even though he's leaving, even though their worlds are upside down, He says to the disciples, if you stay connected to me, you will find life and joy and love. And all of those things are going to be multiplied through you to a watching world around you. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, you can open up with me to John chapter 15. And this chapter continues this farewell discourse of Jesus. And Jesus gives us his seventh and final I am statement in John's gospel. We've seen these sort of scattered throughout. Back in chapter 6 was the first one. He said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I'm the light of the world in chapter 8. And and I'm the gate and the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life. And I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's really important that we see in all of these statements, Jesus doesn't say, I am a gate or I am a light, or I am a way, but he says what? I am the way. This is the way. There's no other way. Jesus is uniquely the way, not one among many. And beyond that, as we looked at these statements throughout the chapters, and we'll see again this morning, when Jesus says that he is something, he is taking something that is that is. Uh, specifically and essentially Jewish and redefining it as himself. He's taking uh, important things from their heritage, from the way they worship, from the way they understand God and said, that thing was just a symbol. It was a shadow. It was pointing towards a time when the Messiah would come and here I am. And Jesus does that again here. Look at verse one. He says, I am the true vine my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. I'm the true vine. Now, when we hear Jesus make a statement like that, it should make us ask some questions. Well, if Jesus says he's the true vine, does that mean there are false vines or, or not true vines? Yes, it does, faithful reader. Remember back we, again in chapter 6 when Jesus said, I am the true bread come from heaven. He was pointing the, the listeners, the Jews, back to a time in their history when they were walking in the desert and they were walking with the Lord and, and, and God gave them manna from heaven to provide for them, to care for them, to, to remind them that he's in control, they're not in control, and, and day by day he provided for their needs, not more than they needed, but what they needed for that day so they would depend on him. And Jesus said, yeah, that too pointed to me. Similarly, when we survey the Old Testament, time and time again, we see the nation of Israel referred to as God's vine. These aren't just analogies that Jesus pulls out of of thin air because, well, they were an agrarian society and there there were vineyards around Jerusalem, so let me just kind of work this into the teaching. One example 
In Isaiah 5, uh, we read about a vineyard that was lovingly planted and, and cared for, and, and everything that was needed for a, a vineyard to have success was placed by the vine dresser and the owner. But instead of it growing good grapes, it grew wild and inedible grapes. And a couple verses down in verse 7, that vineyard is identified as the nation of Israel. We see similar passages in Psalm 80 and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea as well. Now, all of these examples from the Old Testament highlight that, that Israel was supposed to be something. They were supposed to be this vine that produced fruit, that showed the nations around them who God was and what he was like and how he loved them and, and all these things about him, but they couldn't do it. They kept messing up. They never brought good fruit. They always struggled to bring that good fruit. But now Jesus comes to his disciples. He said, he is the way. And now he says, I am the true vine. That Israel, what Israel was supposed to do, I will do. And so he's saying that the path to God doesn't go through the nation of Israel anymore. But the path of God goes through Jesus. He is the way. You don't need to become a citizen of Israel to get to God. You need to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. The old way that included circumcision and sacrifices and, and Jewish festivals and holy days and, and all these rites and purifications, that was done because Jesus has come to fulfill all of them. All of those things were shadows, were, were hints, were pointing toward Jesus. And so a connection to Jesus, union with Jesus, abiding in Jesus is the only way to God. So here's the big idea from our passage this morning, that followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, have a life-giving, fruit-producing relationship with him. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, in our next verses, uh, Jesus builds on this I am statement and continues to speak about the branches that are attached to that vine, that true vine. Let me read it for us. John 15, verse 2. He says, Every branch that is in me that doesn't bear fruit, he, that's the gardener, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He looks at the disciples and says, already you're clean. And there's a bit of wordplay there. It could be, he could be saying, already you have been pruned because of the word, the, the teachings that I've spoken and given to you. He says, abide or remain or stay connected to me and I in you. As a branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. As we read that description, it's not all nice. It's not all roses, pun intended. Jesus talks about two kinds of branches, living and dead branches, and that may cause us to sort of sit up and maybe squirm in our seats a bit and say, listen, listen if, if there is a dead branch, how do I know that I'm not that? We'll get there, I promise. But Jesus here is still, or maybe again, divisive. He doesn't 
coddle his listeners then, and he doesn't coddle his readers today. He's not going to water down the truth in order to protect our feelings. But Jesus has come to bring life, and anyone that puts their faith, their trust, their belief in him gets that life by being attached to him, the branch to the vine. Life comes from the vine, and the life that's in the vine flows into the branches, and that's the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus flows into us as we abide in him, and that becomes our job, abiding, remaining, staying connected. Let me tell you, when we get that right, it's a sweet job. It's not about working to make sure we're hanging on to that vine tight enough. It's not about trying to do enough good, to, to push out enough fruit under our own steam and effort to, to, to be seen as, as valuable or plentiful or worth not being cut, worth sticking around. Instead, it's about reminding ourselves every day that we are in the hands of the master gardener, one who knows what he's doing, one that, that knows where we've come from, what we were created to be, how we're doing right now, and what our potential could be. And we leave ourselves in the hands of that gardener. As one writer says, abiding uh, in this passage is not about holding on to a position, but allowing oneself to be held. I'm not sure about you, but I am not much of a gardener. I understand some things. I've seen some pictures. Uh, I can grow a great crop of dandelions in the yard, but beyond that, I, I'm pretty helpless. My wife is, is, is better than me. We got some great uh, vegetables out of the garden this year, but me, no good. Now, throughout the summer, I don't, if, if you've been around Trinity or driven by the building, I know that you've come by and you've seen some of the greenest grass in the town. You've seen some of the best flowers in town. It doesn't matter what season it is. Something is blooming and bright, and the colors of the flowers eclipse the greens of the plant. It doesn't matter what season it is. Something's going. Something's beautiful. Something is attracting us, should be causing us to slow down a little bit as we drive by and, and just have a look at things. But here's the thing that I've witnessed. That doesn't happen by itself. Shocking, I know. It takes an intervention, right? It takes a gardener coming regularly, multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day when it's love and, and effort and uh, everything into those gardens. The gardener comes and, and, and waters and fertilizes and feeds and, yes, prunes cuts off the dead parts. Alan, you're not in the room this morning. I hope you're online. I'm bragging about you here, and I'm going to keep doing it. There are times where I come down, and, and whatever part of the day during the week I come to work in the office, and Alan's out front. He's, he's got his bucket next to him. He's got his water can on one side. He's got his shears in the other hand, and he's, he's just going. He's watering, fertilizing, trimming, pruning, pulling, and the, the beds and the boxes and the pots just thrive. You know this, right? Even a couple of weeks ago, at our house and, and others in our neighborhood, we'd started to, to pull out the gardens, right? It's starting to get cold. We've had a couple hard snaps of frost, and so, so the sunflowers aren't so sunny anymore, so they're coming out, and these sorts of things. And I bike down, and who's out front? But Alan's there trimming, and he says, you know what? These, 
these boxes, I think I can still get a couple weeks out of them. And sure enough, he did. A couple weeks out of them. Alan, thank you. See, the gardener knows what's best for the plants. Sometimes it's, it's loving. Sometimes it's pruning. And God, the vine dresser, knows what's best for the branches on the vine. He knows what the vines were created to do. And this passage tells us that too. Look at the progression in verse 2. He says, the branches will produce fruit. And then they're pruned. And what happens? They produce more fruit. And then they abide and they, they rest and they, they remain in the vine and, and they're pruned again. And what happens? They produce much fruit. There's a movement here from fruit to more fruit to, to much or plentiful or abounding fruit because of the hand of the master gardener. Part of being connected to the vine, though, is the pruning. And just like Alan comes by to, to deadhead the flowers and prune the roses and all the things, you and I should expect God to prune us regularly, maybe. It's not because God is malevolent or, or angry or just wants to see, well, let's see how Sean can deal with this curveball. But he wants to do whatever it takes to make us, help us, allow us to not just produce, produce fruit or more fruit, plentiful fruit. He's not content to let us stay where we are. He's always pointing us and leading us towards what he created us to be, our, our full potential, that life-giving, fruit-bearing relationship. The other day um, on social, I saw a post, I think it was a, a church had put something up, kind of calling families and especially men to, uh, to, to get up on Sunday, have breakfast with your kids, uh, gather the family, bring them to church, sit in the front row, raise your hands. This wasn't the Baptist church, Steve. You, you know, we talked about, you talked about this last week, right? Raising hands and raise our hands, open the word, and worship God. I was like, yes, I'm in. And then I saw a comment below from a, a name that I recognized that said, how about this? I sleep in, I get up, deal with my hangover from the night before, find some breakfast, Watch football for 11 hours. That sounds pretty good to me. And it's one of those things, I, I, social is maybe not the best way to respond to that, but my heart, heart breaks for that, for that kid, because I know him. I know who he is. He's, he's, he's not a part of a church now, but he's been around church. He, he knows enough. I know that he's got some significant church hurt, in his heart. I know he's got potential. I know that God wants more for his life than that. See, God is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something that's better and more beautiful than what you are right now. He's ruthlessly determined to, to shape you into his son, Jesus, to make you more like his son, Jesus. Listen, those hard things that we're all going through right now, whatever it might look like in your life, and this may not always be the case, but maybe those hard things are actually an act of kindness from God, a pruning, helping you to, to develop um, strength and courage and resilience and, and, and knowing that you need to rest in Him. 
Pruning isn't always nice or comfortable, but it's a part of being connected to the vine. And that connection is so important. It, it, it's, it's more than that. It's essential. Look what Jesus says in verse 4. Just like a branch can't produce fruit by itself, you can't do anything unless you're connected to me. Whoever's connected to me, and, and that person will produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's not to say that apart from Jesus, we can't accomplish anything good. I know that every single one of us can think of someone that, that does good things, whether they're, they're maybe in the church, sort of in the church, or not a believer at all. They can do good things. But what Jesus is saying is the fruit is different. The fruit that comes from being attached to the vine and abiding in Jesus is fruit that, that, that is good. It, it glorifies God in verse 8. The other fruit is that it's that wild fruit. It, it looks good, but ultimately it's, it's rooted in, in works and trying to make ourselves look good and feel good and accomplish something and try to prove ourselves apart from God or to God. When the person is connected to Jesus, when that branch is connected to the vine, the life of the vine flows through the branches, which is the promise from the last chapter, that the Holy Spirit will live in us and work through us. And when the, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit flows through us, even though we might experience seasons of drought or barrenness, there will be fruit. But what does that fruit look like? We're given four examples in the rest of our passage as we go down to verse, uh, from here to verse 17. And the first is this, answered prayer. If our connection to Jesus is like a vine connected to the branches, then, then prayer is like the communion, the exchange of, of nutrients between the branch and the vine. It's, it's just what happens. It's completely natural. When we're united with Christ, that connection produces a relationship and as we know, relationships grow and are maintained and are strengthened by communication. Jesus communicates primarily to us by his word, and then he, we respond in prayer. Look at verse 7. Says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This isn't the first time he's taught this either. Salvation Army Commissioner Samuel Logan Brengel, talking about his spiritual disciplines and especially prayer, said this as we kind of define what prayer is. He says, I do a lot of listening. Prayer, you know, is not meant to be a monologue, but a dialogue. It's a communion. It's a friendly talk. And while the Lord communicates with me mainly through his word, he gives me a great deal of comfort in a direct manner. And by comfort, I do not mean cuddling or coddling, but assurance, assurance of his presence with me and his pleasure in my service. It's like the comfort given by a military commander to a soldier or envoy whom he sends on a difficult mission. You go, put on your armor, I'm watching you, and I'll send you all the reinforcements you need as they are needed. Because I have to be comforted that way a great deal. I don't just assume that God is near me and pleased with me. I must have a fresh witness daily. I love that. I'm working towards that in my life too, that, that my, my prayer life would be as natural as breathing. That I would be comforted, yes, by the presence of God, but, but also strengthened, that that, that, that comfort that would, would put steel in my spine. Know that I'm not alone. I have everything I need. 
not just for the big things either, but for the little things. Like, I lost my car keys. I'm, I'm running behind. God, it's a lovely day. Thank you for that. I have a spelling test this week, kids. Whatever it is, right? Sometimes it's hard to see or hard to hear God's answers, though, when we pray, pray isn't it? Maybe it's just me that's experienced that. Maybe you guys recognize answers every time you pray. They may not be. The answers might not come in the way we, we would like them to or the way we think they should or even the way that we acknowledge them coming at first. I think we can even cry out and say, God, I can't hear you, but I want to. Give me your ears to hear. I'm reminded often of the, the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament who was, who was on the mountainside waiting to hear from God. Maybe you know the story. It's in 1 Kings 19. And God said to him, go out and stand on the mountain before me. And the author writes, behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Or one translation says, a, a delicate whisper. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know about you, but there are times too many times in my life where I am, I am so busy, when my life gets so loud that I cannot hear that delicate whisper of God. I'm letting the news or social media or work or family or, or all the things, music, just, just fill my brain. And I listen to all those things, but I don't take time to be quiet, to be still, and listen. A fruitful life is one characterized by prayer. The second example we see in the text here is obedient love. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus says that uh, as he loves his disciples, with that same love that he loves his disciples with, is the love that the Father loves him. Sometimes there's verses that we read over way too fast and just try and get to the good stuff, but the way the Father loves Jesus, the Son, God incarnate, that's the same way that he loves us. Do we, do we miss that often? I do. I can't even wrap my head around that most of the time. And so in response of that, we love him back. And we obey. We show our love through obedience. To be clear, Jesus is not saying, to get my love, follow these rules. Check these boxes. Do the good things, not the bad things. But instead he's saying, if you love me, this is how it will show. You'll do what I've taught you to do. You'll live the way that I've shown you how to live. You'll, you'll, you'll see that, that all the things I've taught, all the things I've done are not about just random rules, but this is the way to life, and you will live that out. See, ob obedience doesn't earn love. Obedience is evidence of love. Now, Jesus is the king. He's told us many times so far here that he is God. He is the Messiah. He has every right in the world to demand our obedience, to demand our allegiance. But he doesn't. He says here, he no longer treats them as servants or slaves or workers. See, servants are, are given uh, tasks without explanation. 
They're told what to do, told what rules to follow, what things to, to deal with, but they don't get the explanation. But Jesus has invited us into his inner circle of friends. You're my friends now. I've told you everything he said. Everything I've heard from the Father, I've, pl- I've placed this in you purposefully so that you will bear fruit and multiply that fruit. The beautiful thing is that that friendship with Jesus leads into the third fruit here. It's overflowing joy. Look at verse 11. He says, These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full, complete, overflowing, abounding. When we have the Spirit of Jesus in us, working in us, working through us, one of the unmistakable marks is that there's joy in our lives. And as we remain or abide and stay connected to Jesus, that joy becomes full and complete, and and maybe most importantly, overflowing into the world around us. Now, there are days when I am less joyful, Maybe even grouchy, it's hard to believe, I know, but I can tell you on those days when, when, when joy is not the, the kind of the peak emotion, I'm focused more on myself. That, that connection to the vine is, is kinked like a hose. It's, it's bent, it's broken, it's, it's hopefully not all the way cut off, but it's, it's severed a bit. The joy's not coming from the vine to the branch on those days. But Jesus promises us overflowing joy. It's here in the text. This is the most natural or supernatural thing for us. Now, that doesn't mean that every day is easy or characterized by laughter and fun, but it does mean that our, the, the, the root of our lives is, is held by a confidence in who Jesus is, what he said to be true, and the, the joy that comes out of that. That's way more satisfying than anything the world can offer. This joy isn't transactional. It doesn't show up on your doorstep in a little brown box with a smiley face on it. It's just part of who Jesus is. And as we abide in him, our joy is filled. I talked about football a little bit before, but we've got football season starting. We've got baseball season ending. Uh, Imagine Jesus' joy as one of the drink coolers in the dugout. You know the ones, right? The big, like, giant things. Or or at pre-COVID, at Stampede Breakfast, you know, you'd go and you'd get that little orange McDonald's drink. I remember that from, like, track and field in in elementary school. Big cooler, right? Picture that as Jesus' joy. And now we are coming up with our little two- to three-ounce Dixie cup, and we want to be filled with joy. And so, but instead of going to the tap and just hoping we get enough, no, no, no. When it comes to Jesus, we come up to that cooler, we take the lid, we spin that sucker so it comes off, we throw it away like a frisbee, and we take our two-ounce cup, and we dunk that sucker right to the bottom. Elbow deep in orange McDonald's drink. Jesus' joy supply is infinite. His, his resources are immeasurable, and that, that cooler never gets empty. And so when we let his joy be our joy, the result is that joy overflows. Our little cups can never hold it all in. Now, so often when we think about joy and obedience, sometimes I think it's, it's one or the other, right? The world around us tells us that too. You can either follow all the rules or you can do what we say and have some fun. I appreciate how Matt Carter writes this. If the life of Jesus flows through us, we're attached to that vine. 
then our understanding of this world and our purpose begins to change. Our affections and allegiance change. We start to desire what God made us for. We start to wish and dream for what matters. Our goals start to align with Jesus' calling on our lives. And at this point, we begin to feel our weakness, and we cry out to God, and he helps us. And as he empowers us to do what he's called us to do, he is empowering us to do what we were beginning to want to do. And God's commands and our wants come into line. And for the first time, what we want and what we need completely align. Wanting what we need and then accomplishing what we want brings joy. This is not a either or. You can either have joy or follow the rules. This is abide in me, remain in me, let my word live out through you, and you will find joy, real joy, joy that lasts, joy that matters. He says Jesus wants you to live in joy, and if he lives in you, then a steady harvest of joy will appear. So we've got answered prayer, obedient love, overflowing joy, and now we come to the last one, sacrificial love. We'll celebrate Jesus' sacrificial love in just a minute. But in verse 12, Jesus tells us to go and love others like he loves us. Remember, he told us, just like the Father loves me, I love you. So in the same way that the Father loves the Son, we now get to go love others. And I'm going to tell you, the only way, the only way that I can even come close to thinking about somehow getting to that standard is if he lives in me and works through me. It's only by being connected to the vine that this branch can even have a hope of coming close to this. The second time in as many chapters, Jesus has held up this standard of love as the standard by which we will be known. So let me ask us, how much do we need this word today, church, that we will be known not by our political stances, not by our buildings, not by what we're against, not by what we're maybe for even, but by our love for one another? And how do we show love? We sacrifice. Jesus, what did he do? He laid down his life for his friends. Sometimes we get caught up, and I don't want to... You all know the issues of today, right? Masking, not masking, vaccine, no vaccine, all the... I've got my rights. I'm going to do what I want. What does Jesus call us to? Die to yourself. That's how we find life. How are we doing at this? Are we more worried about getting everything that we deserve? Or are we making sacrifices for the good of those around us? Are we focused on self-preservation or self-sacrifice? This is what it means to follow Jesus. To be intimately connected to him. To put our, our hope our trust in the vine to believe in God and believe also in him, to trust in God and trust also in him, to have his life flowing through our veins and producing not just fruit, not just more fruit, but much fruit. Fruit producing isn't just something that, that super Christians do. Some pastor somewhere, some missionary somewhere, well, they got all the fruit. No, no, no. This is the, the reality and the expectation and the reality every single follower of Jesus. Not just fruit, not just more fruit, much abounding, plentiful fruit. I look forward and long for the day when we can look back on our lives with, with, with Jesus' vision and see all the fruit that came.
Some of it we may never see this side of eternity, right? Let me pray, and then we're going to take communion together too. Thank Jesus for his um, sacrificial love for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Jesus, thank you for your words here. Thank you that um, your word is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword that divides between joint and marrow, that, that your word cuts right to our hearts in the most loving way. Jesus, forgive us for when we've tried to avoid the pruning. When we've, when we've, when we've resisted dealing with some of the, the deadheads in our life the areas that, 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 are, that are holding us back from being all that you've created us to be. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to us through your word, the Bible, that you would speak to our, our hearts right now and reveal some of those things. Maybe we don't even recognize that, what they are at this point, but show them to us, the areas that we need to submit maybe even release that you can do your work in us, not to make us look good, but so that we would produce abundant fruit and point all that glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That night that Jesus gathered around the table with his friends, uh, once Judas had left, he said, this is a new covenant. There's something new coming. I'm about to give my life, shed my blood for you guys. All those, those uh, things from the Old Testament, those symbols, those rituals, those rites, they were all pointing to this moment. And after the meal, he, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it is maybe especially fitting on this Thanksgiving Day that we take communion together, that we celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death, giving thanks for all that he's done for us, so that we don't end up as one of those dried, shriveled branches that's only good for a little bit of heat for a moment, so that we can produce fruit, more fruit, abundant fruit.